So welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Kelly Lamarco. Dr. Lamarco is Senior Editor of Science Translational Medicine, which is a AAAS journal. Dr. Lamarco, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm actually also a, a Pitt graduate. Well, I didn't realize that, so uh, congratulations again. <laughs> Thank you. So, relative to your training, you uh, you have an MS and a PhD in biochemistry. Was uh, one of those degrees from Pitt or both of them? They both were. One was from the biological sciences department and one was from the medical school, biochemistry. Very good, very good. So maybe the place to start is, I know you and your colleagues have uh, designed this journal to fill gaps in translational biomedicine, bioengineering, bioscience. Tell us a little bit about these gaps that you're trying to fill. Well, we um, conceived science translational medicine back in 2009 because everyone was thinking and talking about how several decades' work of really remarkable advances in biomedical research hadn't been translated effectively into better therapies or preventative measures. And we sought to investigate why and also to highlight some of the best translational research across broad field that was going on at the time. Um, We had the lofty goal of of hoping to help advance translation by the starting of our journal. One of the reasons that these measures weren't being translated effectively was because of some of the gaps in biomedical translation that have inhibited really unprecedented opportunities for progress in in human health care. When I speak about the gaps, I usually will talk about five gaps, although there are others. An innovation gap, a regulatory gap, one would be a knowledge gap, an education gap, and then finally gaps in policy measures that we need in order to make use of the advances that are happening in translational research now. And when we talk about policy, we cover a broad range of topics in the journal. There are other gaps. There is the elephant in the room, the funding gap, that could be a whole podcast on its own. And then there's also an implementation gap, how to translate new measures to patients into primary care, for example, and also to take what we've learned to enact these new policy measures that we need in order to improve human health care. Although we're interested in those later gaps, the implementation gap, for example, and the funding gap, and we have discussed it in the journal, we have really had very few papers on the latter far end of translations. Most of our papers are from more mechanistic or technological advances in translational research. So of these five gaps, do do any of them seem to be uh, more critical or harder to to conquer than the others? Well, the knowledge gap, well, first of all, I should say that slow translation, we think of it as a long road and a new problem, and we look at some of the recent data on the numbers of drugs that have gone through the regulatory pipeline and how many, how few, I should say, were actually first in class we think of this as a new problem. It actually isn't so new. Penicillin, from the time of initial discovery to use in patient, was was 18 years. So the problem of, of translation taking a long time is not new. 
I think what we have come to realize in the last five, eight years is that we've had a little bit of a rude awakening, and that's that we don't know as much about human biology as we thought we did. And I think we learned this through much of the work that we had been doing, say, in the 90s, where people thought that there were going to be many magic bullet-type drugs. We saw how the beautiful science led up to the discovery of statin drugs, and we thought that was a story that would be replayed over and over again. But the truth is the body is very good at finding a way around whatever you do to try to treat an illness. So if you target one, say, one particular protein, that works in a few cases, but it's not going to be the general rule. Gleevec, it's a rare and wonderful example of a targeted therapy. But as we see in the cancer field, targeted therapies work for a while, and then we have the problem of resistance development. So people have taken a step back and started to redirect the R&D engine toward deciphering the natural histories of human disease and then using this knowledge to try to select therapeutic approaches that will be more fruitful. And rather than relying so heavily on studying a disease in, in an animal model and hoping that the process is the same in the human disease. So that was that's one of the things that's happened in translational research, this new focus on, or a sort of a more intense focus on trying to understand human disease rather than just trying to recapitulate what we think the disease looks like in an animal model. So you've described an interesting uh, set of circumstances here. As I listen to your comments, it brings to mind the, the overall broad discussion about personalized medicine. Could I appropriately translate what you just said, that you're really an advocate of personalized medicine as the way forward? I think that remains to be seen. I think that we don't really have enough information to understand whether we're personalized medicine, how exactly it's going to look. I think we think about personalized medicine as a patient-by-patient basis, but it's really probably going to be groups of patients The interesting thing I think that might come out of the personalized medicine initiative, one of the important parts of that is the involvement of of patients and patient data. I think that what we may learn once we have enough, and I mean, now that we finally have the ability to, because DNA sequencing has become so inexpensive, various kinds of omics techniques have become more automated. Once we collect all of the information, what might happen then is that we'll be able to devise or decipher molecular networks that play a fundamental role in biomedicine. So I would say tomorrow's human biology, and I don't know how close we are to this kind of personalized medicine, but would be the defining of those molecular networks that will happen through collaborations among physicians, scientists, engineers, mechanistic biologists, computational biologists, because what we need to do is understand what the disease driver networks are. This dovetails nicely with understanding the natural history of a disease because we'd like to look at the disease not just when the person comes to the doctor's office with type 2 diabetes, but what's happened during the 20 years before that full-blown disease has manifested and, and is now diagnosed as type 2 diabetes. So what is going on during that time, if we can look and we can understand in individual patients what trajectory they're on, 
possible that we could sort of turn our attention toward the wellness-centric approach where we would intervene early in the disease process before the full-blown disease manifests. So I think that if I think about personalized medicine, I think about, well, of course, we think about cancer, the cancer drugs and the combination therapies, and I think there will be some successes there, especially if we combine it with personalized immunotherapy. But what I like to think about is even farther down the road, when we have devised and when we understand the molecular networks that play a role in the development of a disease, and then we can personalize it in a little bit of a different way by trying to attack the disease before it manifests. I would agree with you that understanding precursors is is important in the, the overall realization of what we want to accomplish. So if we, if we go back to your gaps, so we've talked about knowledge or lack of knowledge. I believe your second gap was innovation or lack of innovation. Can you speak to that a little bit, please? And I would think of innovation as not just a new invention or a different way of doing something, but a real change in how we are able to manifest some aspect of patient care, diagnosis, treatment, therapy. And so innovation would be taking an idea or taking research and turning it into a, I hesitate to say product, but what I mean is a technological advance or an actual advance that is useful, not just advance in knowledge. Uh, Knowledge is, of course, essential, but when I think about innovation, I think we, we talk more about the use of that knowledge to develop something new. So what has seemed to have happened over the last 10 years, maybe a little bit longer, that we've become especially risk-averse. And so in order to innovate, I like to quote Wayne Gretzky, who said, I skate to where the puck is going to be, not to where it's been. And I think of innovation like that, where you're thinking differently about something. But the fear of risk has inhibited people's ability to give free reign to these ideas, these ways to skate to where the puck is going to be, not to where it's been, blocks in access to funding, and then again, inadequate understanding of the mechanistic understanding of human physiology. All of these things threaten biomedical innovation. Yeah, it's very interesting, and it seems to me the proper strategy is, is to manage and minimize risk, not risk aversion. Yes. I think that's true, and I I know that FDA is often berated (laughs) when you go to meetings and people start getting angry about regulation, but they do have a very serious responsibility to protect the consumer, and and also it's not just the regulatory agency that causes this risk aversion. I mean, it's, it's political. It's government, it's, it's a, the consumer. The potential being sued, too. Yes, yeah, right. Yeah. So it's the consumer, it's politics, it's the inability to realize that there are always going to be some risks. One of the things we did in the journal when we had our special issue a couple of years ago on biomaterials is we asked a whole cast of characters in the biomaterials field, academics, people from industry, regulatory scientists, entrepreneurs, patent law representatives, people from nonprofit foundations, what the greatest regulatory challenge was to translation of biomaterials to the clinic. We have a number of very interesting quotes, but one of them came from a tissue engineering scientist and an MD, 
Christopher Brewer, who's now at the Ohio State University, and he said that the problem is risk is a driver of pioneering discovery, and ultimately translational research requires a leap of faith because there's always the risk of unanticipated adverse events. So as much as our goal is to predict the risk, Sometimes you just can't, and I think that's a little bit hard to swallow. Yeah, it's uh, very, very nicely said. So working down your list of gaps, we've already made a segue to regulations. Is there anything else with the regulatory environment that you'd like to share? I know that you're interested in your institute in, in tissue engineering. I could say something a little bit more specific about regenerative medicine and really new techniques like it and that they are on a particularly difficult regulatory path because they are so new. It's not like testing a drug where there's a refined framework that facilitates a risk-benefit analysis. There is no such framework fully devised and used over and over for things like biomaterials and and cell therapies. So that means everybody has to design their preclinical studies. If the innovators are designing their studies and they're different and they're original, unfortunately, (laughs) that's going to lead to a more cautious review by the regulatory system. And as these products become more complex, that's going to make the regulatory pathway more difficult. So We have situations where people have developed new biomaterials, but they're not being used when complex clinical products are made because you want to use something that's already known, that's already been tested in people, because otherwise the regulatory process will be even longer. And that's another way that innovation is stifled, because if we're sticking to the things that we know because we want them to have a shorter and hopefully more successful traversing of the regulatory pathway, which is understandable. What are we not doing that might be way better than what we're already having? So it seems to me there needs to be a way to do a little bit of both, have some really innovative work and also in some cases using biomaterials that we already have used in humans and at least know their safety profile. Right. It's interesting as you talk about tissue engineering. Of course, most tissue engineering winds up to being classified as a a device, which, at least from my perspective, seems to be easier to get an approval than a biologic. So uh, there's some pros and cons with that particular environment. Is that still true, that they're classifying most of the combination materials and cells as a device? Oh, if it's a combination material, that's that's not the case. I was just talking about, for example, biologic scaffolds that aren't preloaded with cells. We just published a paper in the journal about a dendrodextrin material where the group was looking at the performance of the material in different disease states, so in an inflammatory gut disease versus cancer of the gastrointestinal system and looking at how the different levels of tissue damage as a result of the diseases, what effect that has on the biomaterial. And with the long-term thinking being, instead of having that one material fits all mentality, can we design it so that it's participating in the healing process and not just sort of an inert material that we use to deliver something? And it was an interesting experience because I've talked to people about the paper and 
some people said that's great that someone's doing that because it's it's really the way we need to go and then others who felt that well but we have materials that are approved why wouldn't we just use what was already approved so there's a wide range of opinions out there but it was nice to see some innovation going on here in in actually thinking differently about what a material can do it's interesting and moving down the list of gaps, uh, your fourth gap was education, I believe? Yes. So I'll just say two things about that. There are two aspects of the education gap. I'm sure there are many others, but I'll, I'll just mention these two. One is I think that the physician scientist is a sort of a translational linchpin, and in order to translate, we're going to have to deal with a shrinking number of physician scientists because they play a pivotal role in translation. And also thinking about, are the MD-PhD programs that have been developed delivering what we want? I do think that physician scientists are very useful and capable of good at finding unmet clinical needs and then thinking about what do we need to solve this problem. And I think for people that do see patients or do have work in the clinic, and you don't necessarily need to be a physician scientist to have that experience, but that... Patience would be an endless point of infusing passion into your work. It would be an inspiration, I think, and an inspiration both to rekindling your passion for your work but also at, at an inspiration into what do we need. And I think engineers actually, surgeons and engineers tend to work together in that way very well. But the physician scientist problem has been written about quite a bit. There's really sort of a more central problem that extends beyond the physician scientist. And if we just look at some of the statistics, the long training times that are now required to become clinically proficient or scientifically proficient and then to remain clinically and scientifically proficient. There have been some data published that back in 1980, the average age at the time of assistant professorship in the biomedical sciences was 34 33 and 35 years for PhDs, MDs, and MD-PhDs, you know, respectively, and that that had risen in almost 30 years to 39, 37, and 40 years of age. And there's been a similar jump in the time to the first R01 grant, except that it's even a bigger jump. And I actually think these numbers are almost underestimates. I think the problem is even worse than these numbers show because when I did my postdoc, which was a long time ago, you did one postdoc, it was three years, and then you found a job. And now postdoctoral training time is nearly doubled, and it's become almost required for a clinician investigator. So I think what people are starting to try to think about is what do we do? We're at this time in biomedical science that is tremendously exciting. Biomedicine is becoming more quantitative. The way scientists work is changing. We're moving toward asking big questions that require multidisciplinary teams to answer. And with all of this change going on, what hasn't changed is the way we educate our trainees. And so there's a movement, that's what the NIH BEST grants are about, a movement toward having the educational community take on the responsibility of training graduate students, and I think some are considered thinking about postdocs too, to be able to take on a variety of different kinds of jobs that in a number of different realms, policy, education, patient advocacy, law, finance, 
but taking on the responsibility of familiarizing students with these options so that they can actually be empowered to make a career change in that direction. People have been talking a lot about this career pipeline that's clogged because we have too many PhDs going through the system. We definitely have too many if they're all going to be assistant professors, but we have some of the smartest people in the world. It seems like they could be trained to do many things that would then allow us to have smart scientists in positions where they could help address some pressing societal issues like we have in human health. So I think our education gap is that we need to rethink the way we train our graduate students and what we prepare them for. Very interesting. Good food for thought. And your fifth gap was the policy. Can you share a few comments about that, please? Sure. So we've tried to make science translational medicine a, a, a bit of a policy hub in the sense that we wanted scientists to have a place to go where they will learn about policy. And it's important for scientists to think about policy issues and then also become involved in changing policy when I talk about this in seminars, I always quote this really funny quote I, I pulled out from Michael Faraday, who said to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, when he was asked, why should the government fund his research on electricity, he said, because one day, sir, you will tax it. So when scientists say, why should I care about policy, it's like, because one day, sir or ma'am, you will want the government to fund it. And so it, it's useful for scientists to understand and maybe have a little foray into policy. So in the journal, in order to become a policy hub, we made all of our policy articles freely accessible to anyone, even if they don't have a subscription, because we were worried that uh, communities beyond academic science weren't able to, maybe they weren't reading the, these articles and didn't even know they were there. So we talk about things like funding and ideas for early venture funding. So that gap in funding between, say, the first tiny phase zero study and then moving on into a full-blown clinical trial. There's a gap there where work needs to be done that's difficult to have funded. We talked a little bit about the education gap and how to train our next generation of translational scientists. But along the same lines, we have the reward system that needs some changes in terms of policy. How do we reward scientists? What will be our metrics for promotion with scientists who are asking big questions that require multidisciplinary teams to solve or to answer? How are we rewarding people? That's something that a lot of people we talk about, but not a lot is being done. We also talk about global health issues. And so, for example, kinds of surgeries that should be incorporated in almost primary care in the global community, things like cataract surgery. Um, and, of course, we talk about regulatory overhaul. So all of these issues are policy issues that scientists can benefit from thinking about in, and also especially legislation for different kinds of funding. We had done one podcast, I believe, a while ago on secret funding, funding sources that you might not know about. And that's where is the funding coming from now when we look at the drops in NIH funding and little seems to be a little chance of seeing it increased. I don't know. Do you think that's true? <laughs> yeah, think Do we have any chance of having 
uh, we're probably never going to double the NIH budget again, are we? I think that's probably unlikely, at least in our, our lifetimes. <laughs> so you've done a nice job of identifying these gaps, and uh, we said at the beginning we were going to talk about the gaps and then talk about the journal, but I think we've talked about both of them in, in concert, but uh, if you had some other comments you wanted to share about the journal, give you an opportunity to do that. Something that I get asked by almost everyone I meet with is what kind of research do you publish? And I would just mention a few things, but I would like to point them to an editorial that was written in 2011 by our chief scientific advisors. We have chief scientific advisor who is a bioengineer and a cardiologist, Elzar Edelman, also Garrett Fitzgerald, who is more on the pharmacology, biological science side of things. And they wrote an article when they took over as chief scientific advisors about what the ideal manuscript for our journal would be. And they listed five criteria, ones that reports a discovery of translational relevance with a high impact potential. So it doesn't have to be clinically relevant at the moment, but it has some potential to change clinical medicine. Uh, would have a conceptual focus that has interdisciplinary feel. It has elucidates a biological mechanism, is innovative and novel, and is presented in clear, broadly accessible language. Now, every paper doesn't have all of those characteristics, and I should say that depending on where the paper is in the translational path, different things might be asked of it, either more direct human data versus more mechanism, depending on what side of the translational path you're on. And also about the clear, broadly accessible language. It's always best to submit a paper that's well-written because the review process goes more smoothly, but I just did want to mention that we do help with that. One of the services we offer at Science Translational Medicine is to do heavy editing, particularly on the commentary section. Very good. So, Dr. Lamarco, we've enjoyed your comments to this point, but do you have some uh, closing comments that you'd like to share with our audience? One of the things we've tried to do at the journal, being a new journal, is to really meet the people in the community. And we have a broad community that we serve, being a journal with such broad topics covered. And so I would just invite people that if you're interested in submitting a paper or you have a policy issue that you're thinking about and would like to write about it, please feel free to send me an email or contact any of my colleagues. Um, we're all always happy to talk to. And that's actually one of the most fun parts of our job is talking with the scientists in the community. So please don't hesitate to talk to your editors. Very good. Uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us by phone today. And remind our listeners, we welcome suggestions in terms of podcasts. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Until we join you with another podcast, thank you for listening. <laughs>